Hello, 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 my bookish dear friend. It's Freddie here, coming to your channels from the beautiful highlands of Scotland. I don't know if you feel it too, but with this unrelenting shortening of our days and more time at home, I really start yearning to have somewhere different, somewhere exotic, somewhere warmer. So, editing this episode was just perfect. I was a bit of a treat ahead of the even colder months. Today, our guest is very much from the north of Scotland, but we connected through the sheer power of broadband on a hot summer day with his home in Japan. Um, it was hot for him and pretty sure that in Scotland we still had a usual 15 degrees uh, well, anyway, if you love Japan or you would love to go but haven't managed to do so yet, this episode is for you. I had the pleasure to speak with Aberdeen-born author Yamaloni, uh, whose latest book, The Japan Lights, was released just earlier this year. The book is a mix between a travel journal, bit of biography uh, with a good dose of humor. It's really good fun and informative. Um, in it, we follow Ian in his quest to visit the many lighthouses scattered across the country and which bear the signature of a fellow Scotsman. Um, the book, in fact, revolves around the work of Richard Henry Brunton, who was almost unknown in Scotland, but he was considered the father of Japanese lighthouses in Japan. Ian has published several other books on Japan, novels, uh, he's written a variety of genres, so I'd very much recommend to have a look at his previous work. Um, he's also a journalist and teaches creative writing in Nagoya. Um, and it was just great to speak to him about his life in the land of the rising sun, his writing and Japanese culture. So fasten your seatbelts and let's dive into a lovely road trip to Japan. Enjoy. Hello Ian, good, well, good afternoon, good evening for you. Welcome to Northern Bibliosphere and uh, it's fantastic to have a, uh, this connection with japan today so um yeah it's a, it's a different thing for us i don't think we've ever had a, a interview with anyone as like being as far as you are um but that's about the point of your book so can you tell me a bit about yourself and what are you doing in japan <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question um hi thanks for inviting me on um this is this is great i've been listening to to a lot of the episodes and it's a it's a great podcast. So, um, I am yeah I'm in Japan. I'm from Aberdeen originally, um, and I came out to Japan in two thousand and five, originally for a year, um, and I was planning to you know work a bit, save some money, and then move on to the next country, and basically never left. I've been here ever since. Um, got married, settled down, um, bought a house, and that's been my life. And on top of that, writing um, various books, some about Japan, some not about Japan. And, um, but yeah, that's kind of me. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Whereabouts in Japan are you at the moment? Um, I live in Gifu, which is like one of the most non-famous parts of Japan. It's it's kind of in the centre. Um, Nagoya is like the nearest big city that the people might have heard of. Um, but Gifu's gorgeous. It's sort of like the highlands of Scotland. It's all mountains and lakes and, and wild camping and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, 
very much so. It's not near the sea is the only problem. Gifu's landlocked, and because I grew up in Aberdeen, I, I like to be near the sea. I do miss that. Fantastic. And that really resonates in your book, I think. Uh, your new book is The Japan Light, um, and uh, it's all about a series of lighthouses built by a Scotsman in Japan. Um, so can you tell me a bit more about where the idea came from and a bit about yeah, the process of going through uh, the research, but also yeah, the just writing the book? <laughs> well, that's like everything. Um, yeah, so it's the Japan Lights. It's about, um, it's a mix of um, a travel book and a bit of history and a bit of biography. It's sort of the three mixed together. Um, so the travel part is that I travel around Japan visiting all of these lighthouses built by um, or designed by um, Scottish civil engineer called Richard Henry Brunton. Um, he's a guy who came out here in 1868 expressly to build lighthouses he was hired through the famous stevensons the lighthouse stevensons that uh, bella bathurst wrote brilliantly about he was hired to come out and do that which he did and um yeah so 1868 to 1876 he was here and amazingly more than 20 of his lighthouses are still standing are still functioning are still being used by the coast guard as we well, not as we speak, because it's daytime. But tonight, they will switch them back on again. And I just, I thought that was, that was amazing that they were there. So I thought, oh, that's a that's kind of a an interesting, um, just an interesting thing to do is to go and visit all of these lighthouses. I've been in Japan since two thousand five. I've done a lot of traveling. I've been to all the famous places, and I wanted to kind of find an excuse to go to places I would never normally go. And this was that. So that's the travel part of it. In the process, I started learning about this guy, about Richard Henry Brunton, who he was, why, why he came to Japan, what Japan was like when he came, so the history aspect of it, why he was here, like why are they hiring a, a Scots guy to come out to Japan and build lighthouses? And all of that side of things um, all started building in to, to make up what, what eventually um became the Japan Lights. I say eventually because Corona hugely got in the way. Never, advice to everyone, never ever try and write a travel book during a pandemic. It is the worst <laughs> idea ever. So, like, how long did it take you to um, write? Uh, how long did you take it to actually go through to all the lighthouses? I started in, in the summer of 2017. Um, I, I visited the first um, the, the first one I went to, not the first one he built, Shiri Yazaki Lighthouse. Um, I visited that. If anyone listening has read The Only Gaijin in the Village, my earlier book about Japan, the two stories literally start on the same day. Um, and so on this day in 2017, I went to visit Shiri Yazaki lighthouse uh, in Aomori at the very north of um, the main island of Japan um, and that kind of that was a really nice trip it was great and I was like oh this is this is I've got the bug I want to try this I want to see if I can visit them all and obviously they're lighthouses they're spread out all around the coast they're very inaccessible they're very um, like some of them there's no spoilers a couple of them I never actually got to because like you need a helicopter plus permission from the coast guard and all this kind of stuff and you know I'm a writer I don't own a helicopter um, I'm you know I'm not that level of writer <laughs> <laughs> not not in it for the money <laughs> no uh, I mean it would be nice I'm not going to turn it down but yeah I, I'm not at that level 
So that that was 2017. And I very quickly got through about the first 10 or so um, lighthouses, visited them. And then it sort of, as they were further away and harder to reach, it slowed down. And then, as I say, the pandemic hit early 2020. And that stopped all travel um, for Japan was very, very strict about um, travel during that time. And they have this really annoying thing where on your car, on your car number plate, it says uh, in Kanji, the city or the prefecture where the car is registered. So if you drive anywhere, so yeah, no they, like literally everyone can see there's a big sign saying I am from Gifu on my car. So I couldn't, I couldn't even chance I it. I couldn't even try. Um, so that delayed that hugely. But it meant in that time, I could do a lot of the research you know, online and in books. Sadly, I, I didn't. I was. I had all these plans to go to the the National Library in Edinburgh and to go to the um, the what are they called the archives at Kew. The sort of the there's a big part of the book is about um, the the ships they use, the Royal Navy ships they use to get around and stuff. So I wanted to go and look at the log books and stuff like that and couldn't because I literally just couldn't physically get there. So it started in 2017 and, and it's just published now 20, in 2023. So it took a while, um, but it was probably written in bursts. So I'd visit a lighthouse and write that chapter, write that travel bit and then do nothing for a few weeks, then visit another lighthouse and write that bit. And then during the lockdown, sort of did the history biography bit in a, in a big burst. So, yeah, it was, it feels like a very long time. I have to say that. Again, there's a pandemic in between. No one could do much about it. And again, you're easily spotted if you misbehave on the break the rules. So, um, yeah, no, I think it's totally understandable. And I think it's nice to see, different maybe I've seen it at different times I really love how it you get history and you get again your own uh, your own point of view on Japan and your experience and other like someone else's as well because there's also other travel companions sometimes but um yeah there's a fantastic mix which sometimes if it's a book just on lighthouses or just on the character it can be a bit thick if it's that's not your genre, whereas the, this makes it more accessible because then you have moments of just real banter, like you burst out laughing because you have a really good sense of humor, I think, and it's just very accessible and very much like talking to a friend. If I, if, if that's not an insult or anything, oh, but that's, it's just, that's great. I think it's just very, it's very sort of, yeah, it's a nice connection that you create with the reader, and then you have these. Snips, snapshots of um, of uh, of history uh, and very fascinating bits of Japanese history that you wouldn't think about. So um, I think that's really good. How did you did, did you have an idea before writing it in terms of balancing the two, or it came up as you were writing? I I did. So this is my eighth published book. Um, so I, I've I've written a few books before. So I sort of. I wouldn't say I know what I'm doing, but I'm a bit more experienced in how how the process works and how you get to the end and how it comes together. And I knew from the start I wanted. I knew that just me traveling around Japan is not very interesting. You know, I'm not Bill Bryson. I'm not that entertaining just by myself. I'm not Michael Palin. I don't meet these outlandish people. So I knew that wasn't going to be enough. 
a biography by itself wasn't going to be very interesting for reasons um, we may discuss later. R- Richard Henry Brunton is is an interesting guy. He's a fascinating guy. He's not the nicest guy in the world. Um, and a biography of him alone probably wouldn't. Um, it would be a very niche um, interest, let's say. And just the history part. Well, loads of books have been written about the modern history of Japan way better than I can do. My, you know, Mine is just contextual history rather than teaching history in a sense um so i always knew i needed all of those bits together and how how it would fit together and and, and um how to juggle it all that developed as we went along but I'm, I'm really really pleased that you said it works because so many people along the way publishers and things were like they hate mixed genres they hate all these things they want to market it as a travel book or as a biography or as a history um you know my last um, japan book was the only gaijin in the village it's just a memoir about my life in japan and they're like yeah let's do that like say just your life it's like it's not that interesting me me driving around the coastline is not that interesting by itself it needs all the other things to help it get along like that's the spine that holds it together but it's not um the main part so yeah i'm very very delighted that you said it works that way i'm very pleased it definitely does. Uh, I do wonder, uh, you're talking about, well, of course, this is not your first book. You've been writing for a while. Um, can I ask you, what got you into writing? Were you a writer before going to Japan or did, is it something that came afterwards? I've been a writer kind of as long as I can remember, really. Um, I I don't know how it started. I remember writing like stupid little childish songs when I was in in primary school and stuff like that. Um, I think the watershed moment was when I was about 11 years old. We wrote, like, just in our primary class, everyone had to write um, poems about nature or something. I can't even remember the class. But I just know that I think it was my grandmother. And if it wasn't, if it was my mother that did this, she's going to jump up and down on me. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it was my grandmother sent it off to this, like, kid's poetry anthology thing whatever it was and I got and it got printed so I saw like 11 12 years old I saw my poetry in print for the first time I was like okay I want to do this this is an amazing feeling yeah (laughs) I I, I want more of this so I I wrote I wrote sort of from then on in and I did um I did my master's in creative writing at Glasgow in um, 2003 um so that was you know it's always something I want to do and I've been publishing writing publishing poetry, publishing short stories, things like that. But I didn't publish my first book until 2014, so until I was I was 34 years old. So it was like a, a decade after finishing my master's at Glasgow. So there's sort of this huge apprenticeship period, I would guess, of you know, about 20 years of writing and writing and writing, and then books published finally. Um, yeah, and since then I've, I've published eight, eight books depending on how you count them. Um, one of them was went out of print and was reprinted. So if I'm cheating, I can call it nine, but it's, it's eight. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fair enough. And you are a teacher, am I correct? Uh, you teach writing um, in Japan. Yeah, I work at a university in Nagoya. So I teach, um, yeah, I teach creative writing, academic writing and literature, English language, um, various things um, in the classroom. Um, which yeah is great I love I absolutely love teaching creative writing um, to second language learners 
like it, I, you know, I, I was a creative writing student at Aberdeen and then at Glasgow and um, I've run creative writing workshops when it's, when it's all first language stuff, but doing creative writing with second language learners is probably the most rewarding thing I've ever done. It's, it's brilliant because being able to be creative in a second language, a third language, like not in your native language is so rewarding. It's such a beautiful feeling. And I, I cannot do it in Japanese. I would love to be able to do it in Japanese. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, I, I get randomly excited about it. I, I really like that. It's a great job. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, it must be very rewarding. And I guess that's probably because you have people that have a completely different background in terms of writing and the structures, and you just get something that is completely different from what you get from um, someone whose first language is English because there's a different background and a different just different um, culture behind it as well. So you get sentences that you would, and ways of saying that you wouldn't think about at all in English, but that's on beautiful yeah. as well. Absolutely, yeah, There's that's a huge part of it. But there's also the, um, there's actually, I'm gonna come back to that, I just remembered something. But yeah, there's also the, um, the, the part of being able to express, being able to express yourself in a second language is, probably the most difficult thing explaining your opinions explaining your emotions in a second language like when when we learn a second language for the first time you learn sort of practical phrases and practical language how to where, where is the library where is the swimming pool all of this kind of stuff but being able to say like this is how i feel being able to express your identity is really really difficult and particularly at, at university in Japan, at school and at university in Japan, that's not encouraged. It's, there's a lot of translation work. There's a lot of grammar study, things like that. And the students have tend to have quite low confidence in their abilities as English speakers and as people who can just get by in English. And then you put them in a creative writing classroom and they write a poem or they write a short story or they write a piece of creative nonfiction. And at the end, like, oh, my God, I can do this. I wrote a poem in English. I'm better than I thought I was. And their confidence <laughs> levels go through the roof. And that's that's Amazing. that's just beautiful to see. But yeah, just to go back, well, I remember um, you you said that like, from, from a different background, different cultural thing, coming up with new things. One of the great things is when, when my students don't know the right word or can't think of the right word, and they invent their own language and they invent their own imagery. And... Um, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, one of my students recently um, forgot the word automatically and instead said automagically. And I was like, that's better. That is much, nice. much better. Like, how does your iPhone work? It's automatically. I have no idea. <laughs> it's automatic. That's but it's amazing. Magic. So, yeah, like second language students still learning and they're coming up with syllogisms. They're coming up with words. They're coming up with phrases that, you know, would never even occurred to me and are brilliant so yeah it's a great that sounds job. amazing yeah and it must be quite difficult as well in terms of like uh, japan and english are such different languages so for me coming from italian and see some more of the things but it's like yeah, okay it's easy it's the same alphabet it's kind of like it's very similar it's an easy job but then coming from such a different language must be even more difficult and i guess for you as well when you first arrived how did you um cope with learning the language because it's uh 
looks like a nice roller coaster when you first arrive. Yeah, it was it was difficult. It is difficult still. Um, the the alphabet is probably the the biggest obstacle. Um, so Japan has three alphabets: two phonetic and one um, pictogram. The um, kanji. And I just remember I moved to Japan at the same time as one of my friends moved from Scotland to the Netherlands. And he started studying Dutch the same time as I started studying Japanese. And by the time I could basically write my name and my address, he was able to read books in Dutch. <laughs> just because the alphabet's the same and you're just, it's the vocabulary. And, so, and I was I was starting from being completely illiterate and, and his level went so much faster. Um I also handicapped myself. I said at the start, I was only planning to be here for a year. So the first year I didn't really bother very much studying. I was like, I'll be here for a year. I will learn like enough to get by. And then in a year I'll be gone. Um, so yeah, that was, a, that was a bad start in retrospect. I should have hit the ground running when I came, but uh, yeah, I get by now. It's uh, yeah. 18 years kind of, I can survive. <laughs> Good. <laughs> And reassuring yeah. about um talking about language. There's a bit in your book where you quote from Blackander, <laughs> and I mentioned this because I was watching it last night as well, so it just connects quite nicely. Uh, well, you were saying that um well in the episode in Blackander they say that in German there they have it's a tough language. They have no word for fluffy, um, whereas in Japan they have no word for spontaneous. Um. So I do wonder, can we maybe talk about, about that aspect of maybe the culture as well? And you being uh, someone from a different background there as well. Uh, I think it's quite fascinating. Yeah, I like that. I was, yeah, I like that. It's sort of the way my mind works. I'm trying to explain something about uh, about language and culture. So I'll just use a black adder quote. That's the yeah, easiest that's way. That's good. Um, that's always yeah. working. I don't speak German. As far as I know, that's not true, that the Germans do have a word for fluffy. They have tend to have a word for everything. But yeah, Japan, it does have words for spontaneous, but they're all negative words. There's no positive words for just like, hey, like a spontaneous day trip or a spontaneous, uh, you know, the in Scotland, you definitely have the idea of, you know, hey, work's finished. Who wants to go for a drink? Let's go for a drink or let's go do something. Who wants to go and see a film? That sort of positive spontaneity. Um, there's no word as far as I'm aware for it in Japan because it's sort of discouraged. Um, certainly when you're talking about travel, the idea of um, an unplanned trip is anathema. It's it's baffling. They're like why why would you not schedule everything and you know we're going to go to this restaurant and we're going to go to the and we're going to do these things and food is a big part of it so food culture in japan is huge um so when you go somewhere you say like oh i went to kyoto last weekend the first thing anyone will say is oh what did you eat that's the important part so if you're going somewhere then you know the restaurants you're going to you know which food you're going to eat and all these kind of things and of course, that's not always the case. I've done it many times when I was younger, to be fair, um, of just, I'm going to get on a train or I'm going to get on a plane with a backpack and no plan at all and, and see what happens. And here, that's a TV show. That's one of those like crazy foreigner TV shows. Of, they go to the airport and find foreigners coming through and they're like, what are you doing? Where are you going? What's your plans? And they're like, I don't know. I've got a hotel for two nights after that. We'll see what happens. And, you know, the TV presenters like, oh, my God, look at these crazy foreigners, um, which, yeah, 
it's sad. I, I miss that spontaneity. Um, although saying that when I go home, like I'm in my 40s, so when I go home now, there's still no spontaneity because everyone's got kids and you 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 know, I say to my friends, pint, and they're like, No, I've got I've got to pick them up from football practice and, and this kind of stuff. So it does change. But yeah, it's it's an interesting part of the culture that that I've never fully got used to, I have to say. Definitely. And yeah, so there's snapshots of local culture as well. And uh, um, you go through different lighthouses and of course, different lighthouses have different impacts on you. Um, I uh, have, I remember the, uh, let me, I hope that's pronounced correctly, uh, the Shinomizaki lighthouse. Um, so I've uh, That one in particular says that there's a different wind, it clicks with you, whereas maybe others are not. You, you don't have the same moment <laughs> of, uh, oh, that's that's quite cool. So can I ask you, yeah, how, how did you feel about visiting different places? How did they resonate with you differently? Um, um, if that can be summed up, sorry, <laughs> that's a big question. It is a big question. It's an interesting question, actually. Yeah, some of them... I mean, they all resonated in certain ways because they were all part of this plan. So like the first one, Shiriyazaki, um, like kind of is because it's the first one, it's important. And it's, I was lucky in that when I say, imagine a lighthouse, you will imagine Shiriyazaki lighthouse. It looks exactly like what you imagine a lighthouse. Look at a big, tall, um, white thing on the coast, right on the edge of the cliffs, looking out to sea. A lot of them aren't. A lot of them are sort of smaller, squatter. They're, they don't need to be seen from quite that far away because Japan has, Japan's got 30 odd thousand islands, some of them just tiny, tiny rocks. So a lot of the lighthouses are actually um, sort of, they call it the inland sea, um, sort of between two of Japan's islands. Like if you can imagine, like between mainland Scotland and Sky or something like that. Um, so they're just small lighthouses just to keep people right, whereas others are enormous ones to be seen by ocean-going ships. Um, so some of them, yeah, they're a bit, they're not as romantic as you would imagine, you know, when you think of dramatic lighthouses. So there's that impact. Some of them are big um, tourist sites now. So when you go there, you know, they're sort of buzzing with people and there's tour guides and souvenir shops and others are others are locked up with fences and signs saying do not enter and and um I totally obeyed those rules, honest. Um <laughs> I never I never once climbed a fence. Yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah. You wouldn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> but... No, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I jumped to a few small walls, um, but yeah, okay. I, never, uh, I never did anything too illegal, I think. <laughs> but, um, but some of them are like hugely dramatic. So there's uh, one in uh, Mikomotoshima, um, which is 11 kilometers offshore, and you're supposed to not really be able to get to. Um, when I first was researching this there was a documentary done by a Japanese comedian where he he went to this island and he spoke about how his TV producer had to fill in all these forms and talk to the coast guard and it taken months and months and months to get permission to visit the island and I was like well if a, if a famous comedian on TV takes that long to get it I'm never going to get permission and then I found out that there's a a, a local fisherman just takes people out and drops them off on the island so they can fish there all day and then picks them up. So paid him a few few thousand yen and he drove me out. 
And like, that is just an amazing experience, just being literally dropped off on a rock 11 kilometers out to sea. And I had no idea if this guy was even coming back. Like, you just, <laughs> there, there's not even a, there's no harbor. Yeah, I mean, there's no harbor or anything. It's just that the boat went front first, prow first, up to a cliff. And me and my friend who came out with me, Jason, um, we jumped off the front of the boat onto the cliff top. And then he backed out and he dropped some other fishermen off. So we, we were pretty sure he was coming back. But that was like 4 a.m., 5 a.m. And he was like, yeah, see you at half past two. I'm like, okay. And there's there's literally nothing there apart from a lighthouse. You know, there's, there's literally nothing, not even any cell phone reception. So then you're just abandoned on this rock for the day. And in this day and age, that is one of the nicest things that can happen. Just being, well, I've got no phone reception. I've got no internet. There's no shops. There's no people. There's just me and my friend. We're just going to chill. We're just going to relax. And, and being middle-aged men, we're going to nap quite a lot <laughs> most of the day. So. Nap on a remote rock. That sounds very romantic. And if that is not spontaneous, then <laughs> I don't know what that is. Um, that's brilliant. Uh, I love the story. Um, I wonder, uh, going back to... Uh, the sort of the other main character in the book, Brunton. Can you tell me a bit more about him? Um, and maybe, yeah, what do you discover about him and uh, how you relate to someone who came to Scotland, uh, sorry, came from Scotland all that time ago? Yeah, so Brunton's an interesting guy. He was born in 1841 in Aberdeenshire. So he, he grew up not far from, from where I grew up. Um, which is that's the sort of hook. Ooh, when I was I was on Wikipedia, that's the the first hook. I was like, oh, that guy's that's from near me. Um, and yeah, he grew. He was grew up civil engineer. He built railways and and bridges and things all across Scotland. Um, and then for recent, I never quite found out because so Brunton never really wrote about himself he, he wrote a memoir about his time in japan which is not a good book i, I really don't recommend people read it he's, he's an engineer not a writer um but it's it was invaluable for my research but when he writes about it he only writes about two things he writes about building lighthouses and he writes about how much he doesn't like japanese people and that's basically his two things he just complains about being in japan and then talks about his work and he never talks about himself. But for some reason, when he was married with a very young child, he applied for this job in Japan um, to come out and build lighthouses. Um, and he came out, he was in his 20s at the time, came out in 1868 and, and did it. He built um, more than 20 lighthouses, light ships. Um, he completely redesigned the city of Yokohama and the harbour, the, the main street, which is still there, still in his design. Yokohama Park, which still has, it has a statue of him or a, a bust on a plinth of him. And very, very disappointingly, he for a Scotsman in Japan, when he designed Yokohama Park, he put a cricket pitch in the middle of it, which, you know, for a Scotsman, come on. And it, eventually it was replaced by a baseball field, but that's that's not really much better. Why not Shinty? Although probably <laughs> is a different area. But... That'd be good. Yeah, I mean, it's football something, you know, not cricket, anything but cricket. Um. So yeah, he had this fascinating life, and he was there for he was there for eight years. And his wife came with him, and his his eldest daughter came out, and then they had a second when they were there. Um, and then after eight years, and this is the bit where I really got hooked. After eight years, his contract wasn't renewed. He was sent home, and sort of disappeared. Then he slipped into obscurity. He worked for for various companies, um, and that was it. He had these sort of eight 
fantastic years, eight years where he did great work. And he's still considered a hero today by the, the Japanese Coast Guard. Um, you know, he's, his work has saved hundreds of thousands of lives directly. Um, and he's nobody's ever heard of him in Scotland. Um, and I'd never heard of him. I just happened to come across him. So he's, he's got this great life. He's done this great stuff. But there's that side of him. I mentioned that he writes about in his book where all he does is just badmouth Japan, Japanese people. He's part of it is sort of Victorian colonial attitudes of, um, you know, I, I am born British, therefore I am superior. That condescending attitude they had at the time. But it's a bit more than that. Like even his peers say, this this guy's a bit much. This guy goes a bit too far. He makes a lot of enemies um, when he's in Yokohama. Um, people try and get him arrested for various things. He starts a series of... It's probably the funniest thing for me researching it was he starts a series of what today would be like Twitter spats um, with other engineers in Japan by writing to the local newspaper in English. So there's like letters to the editor saying Brunton says, you know, this engineer proposed this scheme and he's an idiot. And then the other engineer writes back, I'm not an idiot, you're an idiot. And it goes on and on and on. So he's he's basically like a, a Victorian internet troll at the <laughs> time. Love um, which, <laughs> I, I, was, I was sitting in Yokohama archives with the actual newspapers just laughing out loud at this. But the guy's, um, he wasn't a nice guy. Like people didn't like him. He didn't really make many friends. Everybody respected him. Everybody thought he was um, a fantastic engineer and the work he did was great. But he was a very, very difficult person. He was, I mean, by, I was going to say by modern standards, he was racist. By the standards at the time, he was racist. Like his peers were like, no. So this, this, today would just be, oh, yeah. no. <laughs> oh yeah, no, he's been mm. far, far beyond the pale. Um, but that's why that's one of the things I really found interesting about him is that because there's that whole discussion going on at the moment, quite rightly, it's, it's an important discussion to have of can a horrible person produce great work? And if someone who has produced great work turns out to be a horrible person, can you still enjoy the work or celebrate the work? Yeah, we have actors who've turned out to be bad people. Can you still watch their movies? That kind of thing. And this is kind of like that. Like this guy saved, directly saved hundreds of thousands of lives through his work. And that not just lighthouses, like he helped um, with the sewage system in Yokohama, which stopped, there was regular cholera outbreaks and people would die from diseases. And at the same time, he was he was a horrible guy. He was a horrible racist guy by the standards of the time. He was a horrible racist guy. Um, and so, like, should we then consign him to history? As had been happened, you know, he, his memoirs were never published. And then they published them in 1991 on the 150th anniversary of his birth. And they immediately went straight back out of print because... They're not very good. Nobody really wanted to read That's them. That's also probably a reason. If they were really good, maybe he could have had a bit more. There is that. But also, like, but... Should, like, it was something I kept thinking about while I was writing this of should I, like, am I raising him up in a way? Am I saying, hey, here's, here's someone we should honor in a way? And in a sense, yes, here's someone whose work is important. 
But also, I want to be very clear that I do not think he is an honourable man. He is an he is a man who should be emulated, and that kind of thing. And I I just think what I tried to do with the book and what interested me most about Brunton is that nuanced idea of what it is to be a human. That no one is a hundred percent a villain, and no one is a hundred percent a saint. We are all fragile and broken and, and fractured and and Brunton is so visibly both he is a he did great work while being such a flawed human being that I just wanted to explore that and I think that's that's interesting definitely I think it's very well contextualized in a way you never think like you, you can see maybe the highlight but also you bring out the negatives as well so I think context is so important and yeah I probably you should never just complete completely cancel something but you always even if someone again has done great work you need to know what's behind it so I think that comes across really well in the book so I have a question to ask you which is mostly doing this research and um going through um all these different sort of places uh, maybe seeing other places that you've been before but in a different light um how has your relation what did you learn about maybe japan but also is this changed your relationship with the place as well has it added something to it it certainly added something i mean I, i've seen parts of japan that there there is no reason i would ever have seen otherwise um you know i've been to some of the most obscure places like literal rocks in the ocean you know, 11 kilometers offshore. Um, one one thing it's confirmed, which I suspected anyway from, from living in Gifu, there are very, very famous parts of Japan, the places that tourists go, and the places that when you speak to Japanese people, that they will recommend you go, oh, you have to go to Kyoto, you have to go to Nara, you have to go to, you know, there, there are famous places that everybody should visit. And then if you say to to even Japanese people, like, oh, what about this place? They'll say, oh, there's there's no reason to go there. There's nothing there. There's nothing famous to see. Beautiful example of this is in, in Gifu. Um, so I said at the start that Gifu is, is incredibly not famous. Um, most people outside Japan have never heard of Gifu. It's not somewhere where people go. Gifu is perhaps the most important part of Japan there ever was because Gifu is where there's a place called Sekigahara, which was the most important battle in Japanese history um, that, that settled sort of everything. It started the, the Tokugawa shogunate and everything like that. It's it's like it's like Waterloo. It's like the Somme. It's like one of these great battlefields that, that everybody knows about. But if you ever say to Japanese people, oh, I'm thinking about visiting Sekigahara, why? Why would you go there? What, there's nothing there. There's just history. And there's not. There's an amazing museum. The, the battlefield's still laid out. They've, like The tourist board has done amazing stuff. But it's just, it's not the right kind of touristy. It's not temples. It's not geisha and samurai. Well, it is samurai, but not in the sort of Kyoto way. And so I saw all these parts of Japan that people would say, like, why would you go there? And it turns out, like, there's one place I went to where there was there was a, on the walk from the car park to the lighthouse, there was a museum of Turkish culture. 
in Japan, okay. in, in the middle of nowhere in Japan, <laughs> on, the, on the very on the edge of a peninsula, and a Turkish museum. Why so? It's like, what is going on here? What is happening? And it turns out that there was a there had been a Turkish um, ship was shipwrecked at that point before there was a lighthouse built, and the people took Turkish people on um, on land and looked after them and cared for them, and eventually they were returned to Turkey, and it created this bond between the Turkish government and this local little Japanese town that has kept going ever since. And there was a movie made about it. And so they, they have this, they have this museum and they have um, kebab shops and they have souvenir shops selling Turkish rugs and lamps and stuff like that. And like, you'd never, that's not in any guidebooks that doesn't come up anywhere. You just have to literally walk past it and go, what, why is this here? And find out. So you know, there's there's loads of those things that I would never have known about. I would never have experienced the rest of my life living in Japan if it hadn't been for the excuse of I'm going to visit a lighthouse and take a photo of it, take a selfie, and then come back. And so yeah, it's it's. I don't know if it's changed my perception of Japan. It certainly opened up my my experience and my awareness and. There are now, you know, when people come and visit in Japan, as well as Tokyo and Kyoto and Hiroshima and all these places, you should see. Why don't you go here? Why don't you go and see this Turkish museum? Why don't you go to? Why don't you go and nap on this little island out in the ocean? And all these kind of things. So, yeah, it was. I'm. I'm. The book aside, I'm very, very happy that I. I just literally did this. I just literally traveled around and went round. Um. Not least, I don't want to talk too much about it because it's sort of the end of the book, but some some of the lighthouses up, up the coast um, in Tohoku where the, the tsunami and the earthquake and the, the nuclear disaster happened, going there and seeing that and, and, and seeing the, the literal physical effects of a tsunami like more than a decade later um, where one of the lighthouses is still standing. You know, nothing else is standing, but the lighthouse is still there. That's powerful. That's shocking. That's emotional. Um, and again, I'm I'm so happy I I could experience that. Could have that experience. Um, but yeah, it was. Yeah, I, I don't want to talk too much about that because I don't want to take away that sort of. It's a big part of the book. So yeah. the experience definitely no. So uh, if you're interested in knowing more about that part, go read the Japan Light. <laughs> um, and uh, Ian, thank you so, so much for your time today. Uh, really appreciate it. And yeah, well, uh, well good luck with your future uh, tours as well. I know that you're going to be in Scotland shortly. Yeah. So um, yeah, we'll back to back to a bit of colder weather. <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah. No, thank you very much, Federica. That's, um, that's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. So that's us for today. I really, really hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thank you very much for lending us your ears. And uh, if you've enjoyed it, please leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. That would be super, super helpful. <laughs> that would be super, super helpful. And if you want to get in touch to talk about a book that you loved or tell us which is your favorite travel writing author, please drop us an email at northernbibliosphere.pod at gmail.com. Take care, wrap up, and I'll see you next week with a new episode of Northern Bibliosphere. Bye!